He is a good, good father. Amen, church? Let's open up to John chapter 10 as we continue our series through the gospel of John. We get to continue to behold the Son, that by beholding the Son, we might behold the Father and see that He's a good, good Father. We'll start reading uh, it just from the beginning of chapter 10, but we're going to focus on verses 22 to 30 in our time together this morning. Should be page 896 if you just grab the Bible uh, in the chair in front of you. The Word of God reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon. It is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And now for our passage this morning. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And it says that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we plead, Lord, that you would be who you are. And that you would teach us who we are. 
Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. We ask that you would draw every soul in this room to you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the truth concerning your son and his sheep. Lord, we know that flesh is of no help at all. So would you please be kind to us and teach us by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that your light and your glory would scatter the dark clouds of confusion and doubt that hang over our hearts. We pray that we would see clearly the plain and powerful words and works of your Son. For when we see him, we see you. And when we know him, we know you. And in knowing you, we know your Spirit as well. We know you, the only true God, who is eternal life and gives eternal life. Lord Jesus, may your sheep hear your voice this morning and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think are the two most important questions in life? What do you think are the two most important questions in life? I think that in our passage, we come across them. Did you catch them? Did you catch them? The, the Jews come to Jesus and say to him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I think that is the first and greatest question of all of life. Is he the Christ? That makes the biggest difference for us in our lives. And the second is also shown to us when Jesus responds to them and tells them that they are not his sheep. Who is Jesus and who are we? I think those are the two greatest questions of life. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the seed promised in Genesis chapter 3 who will crush the head of the serpent? Is he Abraham's promised descendant? Is he the line of the tribe of Judah? Is he the promised prophet like Moses? Is he the promised son of David? Is he the son of man? Is he the king of Israel? Those are all variations of asking that same important question. This one who has been identified over and over and over throughout thousands of years, by prophets in the Old Testament, that one would come and be the Savior of the world. He would restore and save Israel and establish his kingdom and bring perfect peace and justice and righteousness forevermore and bring a people to come and to enjoy his glorious kingdom. And so is Jesus the Messiah? I think is the greatest question. And the second to that then is, if Jesus is the Messiah, then are we the Messiah's people? In other words, are we his sheep? And we could get both of those questions wrong. There's a lot of people who think they know who Jesus is, but they fall short of identifying him with what the scriptures state about him. They fall short of identifying him and seeing him clearly for who he has claimed himself to be. They fall short. And in falling short, they end up rejecting him. And they don't believe he's the Messiah. But yet in rejecting him, they reject the Messiah. They reject the Father. And we're told that the one who denies the Son does not have the Father either. So is Jesus the Messiah? That's the first great question. The second, are we his people? Who are we? Who are you? Are you his sheep? And, and I hope that if you've struggled with either one of those questions, if you've ever had any doubts with either one of those questions, whether he's the Messiah or whether you're one of his sheep, then I hope that this text will bring clarity to you. That just as they're asking for Jesus to, to say it plainly, Jesus, that you would hear from what Jesus says here and know that he says and claims plainly that he is the Messiah and that he has a people. And he goes and he describes these people, what they do and what he does for them. 
and it's nothing short of glorious, and it's nothing short of giving us the greatest assurance of salvation for those of us who believe in him. And so that's what I want us to spend our time doing this morning. So to boil it down, the main idea of John chapter 10, verse 22 to 30, is that we receive clarity from Christ on the two most important questions of life so that we might believe in him and enjoy assurance of salvation. And so first we have to say, who is Jesus? This is the question that everyone is wrestling with. If you look in chapter 10, notice the, the different conclusions that people have got, got to in, in verse, 20, verse 20. It says, many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by demons. Like if you just listen to him and what he's saying, you wouldn't, how could you ever come to the conclusion that, yep, that's, that's Satan talking through him? How could you do that? But not only that, he also, that crowd also says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so these are the ways that we identify whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Did you catch him? These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. And can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We have the words and the works of Jesus. And those together make it plain, make it abundantly clear who he is so that we can have assurance that he truly is the Messiah and so that we can have assurance that if we've placed our faith in him, that we are gonna be just okay. Messiah is going to take care of us because he is our shepherd. But we don't want to get either of those questions wrong. We know that in the Gospel of John, uh, the, the, the Gospel of John started with a prologue that set out from the beginning John's conclusion to the matter of whether Jesus is the Christ. And he identified him not only as the Christ, but even in verse 1, as the one who is the Word, who was with God and was God. But going down, when we we get to verse 17, it says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The whole thesis of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Christ. When we see John the Baptist uh, come onto the scene, his preaching is so powerful. He sounds like a prophet. He looks like a prophet. People are even beginning to think, could he be Christ? And they ask him, and he says, no, but I I have come to be the Messiah's forerunner. And he points out the one who is the Christ. And he testifies in chapter 1, verse 34. He says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Going on in that chapter, what do the disciples say? In verse 41, Andrew found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found Messiah, which means Christ. Jumping down, Nathaniel says in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so the whole rest of the Gospel of John is, is we're, we're, we're seeing kind of the, the disciples and John's response in contrast to the, 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 the popular Jewish response to Jesus. In the prologue, it said that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's only something that the Messiah could do. In John chapter four, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, she tells him, look, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And so all, all, all this to say that the beginning of the Gospel of John and scattered throughout in Jesus' interactions with people are his claims that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And when we come to John chapter 10, the identity of Jesus is, is still being debated. Uh, and we find Jesus here at the Feast of Dedication, or what's also called Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. 
Uh, it's a, not a biblical feast required in the Old Testament, but it's one that became a tradition in Israel before the time of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't opposed to joining in in, in that celebration. He was in the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication celebrated the cleansing and rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated and defiled uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was the Seleucid king of Syria. Uh, one, one commentary that I read said that the king of Syria attacked Jerusalem, pillaged the temple, killed or captured many of the women and children, banned tra traditional Jewish religious practice, outlawed Jewish sacrifices, Sabbaths, feasts, and circumcision. And also that he established altars to Greek gods upon which unclean animals were sacrificed, and he desecrated the Jewish temple, and possession even of Jewish scriptures became a capital offense. Not only that, he sent soldiers to compel Jewish inhabitants to make sacrifices to pagan gods. No religious freedom for them. In response to this, you have the rebellion and uh, guerrilla warfare that a number of Jews take part in and eventually are able to fight off through many battles the Seleucid forces, regain Jerusalem, cleanse and rededicate the temple, and enjoy a measure of religious freedom again. So if Jesus is there in the temple on that day, and they are asking Jesus to say it plainly, tell us if you are the Christ. And then Jesus tells them, look, I have already told you. And you do not believe. What might that tell us about their attempts to get him to proclaim himself as the Christ on that place, on that day? What, what could be an easier charge of sedition? What could be an easier charge of someone trying to start a rebellion and revolt? This guy claimed to be the Messiah during the Feast of Dedication, which celebrates, you know, national sovereignty regained through overthrowing the Gentile overlords. Put him to death. There's no king but Caesar. So Jesus answers them plainly, but not with the plain words that they hoped that they could use against him. Jesus tells them, I have told you plainly, or I have told you, and you do not believe. And this, this highlights for us that Jesus' words have been sufficiently clear. All that they needed to believe had been spoken already by Christ, by John the Baptist, by his disciples, by the people who saw Jesus or heard Jesus on different occasions, and they do not believe. Jesus had told the Samaritan woman he was the, the, the Christ. He told Jews in John chapter 5 that he was the unique son of the Father who could work like the Father and do good on the Sabbath. He told uh, and claimed that he was the bread of life. He said in John chapter 7 that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For, out of, for whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In chapter 8, he claimed that he was the light of the world, that whoever follows him would not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He claimed to be the Son of Man, the Son of God, sent from heaven, sent by the Father, here to do and accomplishing all that the Father desires of him. He even went so far as to say before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' claims were were not vague. Jesus' claims were clear. And they're so impressive that in John chapter 7, we hear, uh, we hear the, the, the crowd respond, how is it that this man has, learn, has this learning when he has never studied? Right? He didn't go to any of our, our famous rabbi schools. Where did he get this? This was the power and impact of his speech and his words. And his words were sufficient to reveal who he is and who he is. So impressive, so impressive were Jesus' words that soldiers who were sent to arrest him in John chapter 7, verse 46, 
went back empty-handed. And then when they're grilled for, you know, not bringing Jesus back and arresting him, they said, no one has ever spoken like this man. No one has ever spoken like this man. Jesus spoke with authority. He spoke with clarity. He spoke with boldness. He claimed things that could only be true of the Messiah, and he claimed things that could only be true of a divine Messiah. Every time he spoke, he made it plain. If you still doubt that, look back at chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22 is in the chapter when we're dealing with the the blind man and, and him being interviewed by the Pharisees. And in chapter 22, it says of the blind man's parents, you know, they said, ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. And it says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. (laughs) They already knew what the claims were about Jesus. There's no mystery. They had official meetings and official, you know, rules set up, a position that they were taking that the synagogues were to put out, cast out, disfellowship, disown any who are claiming that Jesus is the Christ. So how could that be possible? And then them come to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell us plainly. Are you the Christ? It's ridiculous. Jesus has been plain to them but they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that he is the good shepherd. They don't want to hear that he is the king of Israel. They they don't want to hear any of these things. Jesus told them, but they did not believe. And if you were to just if we were to just jump ahead in our passage and I, I'm not I'll just point these quickly because I don't, uh, I'll spend um, some time on those verses later, but uh, even what Jesus will go on to say makes a number of more plain statements of who he is. Think about this. He, he's claiming to be the shepherd of God's sheep. Who is that except the Messiah? If you, if you were to go and you look at Micah chapter 5, you look at Jeremiah 23, if you look at Isaiah 40, if you look at Ezekiel 34 and 37, if you look at Zechariah chapter 12, you were to look at uh, these, these different passages in the prophets, you would recognize that there's a, there's a recurring theme in the prophets. And one of the prophets do, they absolutely destroy and condemn Israel's leaders for their unfaithfulness. And they call them out and identify them as bad shepherds, selfish shepherds, you know, horrible shepherds who do not do the work of true shepherding. And in all those different texts, we see God promising to come himself and to shepherd his people themselves so that they can receive the care and protection and salvation that only he can offer. When Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he's, yes, shepherding is a metaphor for kings and their care for their subjects. But more than that, we have messianic promises tied to that. And so for Jesus to talk about him being the shepherd, him owning the sheep, the sheep being his, I mean, these are are plain statements. The fact that he could say, I give them eternal life, that they won't perish. Uh, These things can be none other, be true of none other than the Messiah promised by God. These are his words. They're clear. But not only are Jesus's words supposed to give us assurance of his identity as the Messiah, but his works as well. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. So just, just as we saw in, in chapter 20, or verse 21, these are not the words of one who is oppressed. And then can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We see his words and his works there showing who he is. We also see Jesus saying, I told you, you know these things, then make a bunch of claims in this text to show that he's the Messiah. But then also he says, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. What are some of these works? We know from John chapter 20 that John didn't include many, many, many of the signs that Jesus did. 
But if we're just looking at the gospel of John alone, we, we have the miracles of Jesus turning water to wine in chapter 2, healing an official son in chapter 4, healing the man who is paralyzed for 38 years in chapter 5. We have the healing of all the sick that are brought to him in chapter 6. We have him feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, uh, akin to preparing a feast for the wilderness in the wilderness for his, for his people in John chapter 6 as well. Moreover, we have in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter, yeah, chapter 9, the, the healing of the man born blind. And that's just the stuff that John mentions. The other gospels are literally filled with more miracles that Jesus performs. His ministry is a ministry of the word and miraculous works. And his words interpret his works and his works verify his words. And you can't separate them. And together, even if you just take them on their own, you could be convinced. But then to, to have them combined and, and uh, wrapped up together creates for assurance and certainty of who Christ is. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 5 that, verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So impressive are Jesus' miracles now that people saw it and came to the conclusion that he is the promised prophet who is to come into the world, and they even tried to make him, take him and make him king by force in John chapter 6. So impressive were Jesus' miracles that those who had begun to believe in Jesus asked those who seemingly weren't, who were skeptical, they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? So impressive were Jesus' miracles that after the raising of, the, of Lazarus in, in John chapter 11, the, the, the Jewish leadership, the chief priests and Pharisees will, said with one another, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see the importance of his words and his works? He doesn't sound like he doesn't look like, and he doesn't do the types of things that fake fraudulent shepherds do or fake fraudulent messiahs do. He, he, he doesn't sound like a demon. He doesn't look like a demon. He doesn't act like a demon. He doesn't talk like a demon. In fact, he wreaks havoc on the whole demonic realm by casting out demons and healing people. Everything he says and does points to him being the Messiah. And the purpose of that is so that you will believe that he is the Messiah. And so when, that first question, who is Jesus? I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? You're believing something about Jesus right now. But what is it? Will you have the, the patience the humility of self-introspection to consider for a moment, what is it that I really believe about Jesus? Do I believe that he is the Messiah? John says that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? This leads to our second question, because the second question is very much based off the first and informed by the first. Who are we? Who are you? Don't merely assume that you are on good terms with God. The Jewish leadership made that mistake in our passage. Moreover, do not let your family's faith do not let your religious upbringing, do not let your family bloodline be a source of confidence before God that you are his. None of those matter. What matters, Jesus will tell us. What matters first and foremost is that you believe that Jesus is 
the Messiah. We have a bunch of people who think that when the Messiah shows up, I'm surely going to identify him. I'm surely going to follow him because I'm God's, I'm God's person. I love God, and I'm saved, and I'm faithful to him. And, and so when the Messiah shows up, I'm going to follow him. That's what the Jewish leaders thought, and they missed it. And everybody who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah today is, is, is missing it. Who are we? Are we God's people? Are we the Messiah's people? Are we his sheep? Are we going to experience the salvation that God has promised to come through the Messiah? Are we going to enter into the Messiah's kingdom? Is, are we going to be raised by the Messiah to enjoy fellowship with him and all his people for all eternity? Or are we going to be cast out? Are we going to be condemned? Are we going to be punished in hell for eternity? Who are we? Are we his sheep or not? Five truths that help us identify and set apart those who are his sheep from those who are not. And I think that we would do well to listen and to seek clarity on this issue. Because if you're here and you think you're his sheep when you're not believing in him, it's not going to end up well. Likewise, if you're here and you are his sheep, and you just doubt that all the time, and you, you, just, you just are, are you know, full of, of just anxiety and panic and, and doubting that, that you could ever be saved and that you could ever be his, that likewise is something that should not be the case either. And the plain words of Jesus here will make those things abundantly clear. So five truths that identify and set apart Jesus, uh, set apart Jesus's sheep from those who are not his flock. The first is that they are given to him by the Father. They are given to him by the Father. Look at verse 29. Jesus says that my Father who has given them to me. What is he talking about here? This is the most defining truth about Jesus' sheep. And it's the truth upon which all the others necessarily follow. Those who are given are known and called and follow and are kept forever. Because the Father has given them to the Son, the Son knows and calls them. Because the Father has given them to the Son, they, they follow the Son. And because the Father has given them to the Son, they are kept forever. They are the Father's great and special gift to the Son. And he doesn't just give them to the Son for a time, but he gives them to the Son for all time. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This is deeply humbling, but it helps us make sense of this previous statement. Did you catch it earlier? Jesus said to them, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You've got to hear that. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And most of us would probably be thinking, wait, Jesus, isn't it the other way around? I thought it was like, it, 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 I thought it was, you know, I, 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 I'm not part of your flock because I don't believe. But Jesus says it's the other way around. And how can we make sense of this except that all of us have been born in unbelief and sin and rebellion against him. And all of us deserve eternity in hell. But God, in his grace, not because of anything that we have done, he, all by his grace, chooses a, a select people. He chooses a people, not all people, or else Jesus could never say to anyone, you are not a part of my flock. But he chooses a select people that he gives to his son as a gift that his son holds and enjoys forever. This theme of God's sovereignty and his election and his working in salvation to bring a people to his son whom his son enjoys forever and those people enjoy his son and him forever is scattered throughout John. John chapter 6 verse 37 says, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So what percentage of those the Father gives the Son actually come to the Son? 
100%. And he says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he says in verse 39, we have to hear this, that I shall lose nothing of all the Father has given to me, but will raise it up on the last day. So what percentage does he lose? What percentage of his sheep does he lose? As a forgetful shepherd, you know, he makes mistakes. Maybe there's a couple that, you know, fall off the cliff and die. Does he lose any of his sheep? Does that make him a good shepherd? That's right. <laughs> a good shepherd. John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Another one, John 8, 47. He, Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And then he says, the reason why you do not hear them, speaking to this, this callous and disobedient audience, the reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. John 17, verse 6, Jesus praying to his father says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So the people whom God has given and all the people of the world are different groups. And all that the Father gave him out of the world, Jesus says he manifested or revealed the Father, his name to them. And we go on in that prayer and Jesus says, I'm praying for them, speaking of those whom the Father gave him. He says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. The sheep are a special gift given from the Father to the Son forever. So that's the, 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 the absolute biggest thing that sets them apart from those who are not his sheep. Second truth that identifies them and sets them apart is that they are known by the shepherd. They are known by the shepherd. If the father has given the son sheep to take care of, you think the, the, the son who's a good shepherd would know them? Absolutely. Jesus knows his sheep. Earlier in the passage says he, he knows each one by name. Not a single one of them is lost. He hasn't failed to be able to identify a single one of them. He can look out and see them all and name them all and knows them all and all the little things about them that make them different from the rest of them. He knows them personally. He knows them intimately. He cares about them. They're his and they belong to him. He is the good shepherd who knows his own and his own know him. If you're his sheep, he knows everything about you. He knows your trials. He knows your tribulations. He knows your, dis, your discomforts. He knows the battles that you're facing. He knows the things that are threatening you. He knows the, the thoughts that you have. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows you. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your successes, your failures. He knows the temptations you endure. He knows what you need. He knows you because he's a good shepherd. If you're his sheep, he's familiar to you, and he cares for you. That's the second tr truth that identifies and sets Jesus' sheep apart. But a third one, and this is by far the, or excuse me, the third one, uh, is that the sheep are, are called. I kind of got into this already, so I won't spend much time here. That He says that my sheep hear my voice. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 2,000 years later, do you know how the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, even though the shepherd is in heaven and he's already 2,000 years ago died and ascended into heaven and has remained there until he's going to come again. In that intervening time, how do people hear the voice of the shepherd? Through the foolishness of what we preach to you every Sunday, church. Through the opening up of the scriptures, through the opening up of the word of God, through reading of what Jesus said and did, they can hear and see the shepherd. And follow him. This is what his sheep do. Fourth is his sheep 
follow him. And this is the, if, we, if you could think of Jesus as knowing the sheep and the Father giving the sheep to the Son, th- those things, maybe we can't see them. But this is one thing that you can see that distinguishes the sheep from those who are not. Jesus says, my sheep follow me. My sheep follow me. It's not that they do it perfectly. It's not that they do it and never stumble. Yes, they do it imperfectly. But they are following the shepherd. Are you following the shepherd? Are you following the shepherd? Are you his sheep who follow him? Is life hard? Yes. Are there troubles and trials? Yes. Is there suffering to be endured? Yes. But you follow him. You follow him. How long do the sheep follow the shepherd for? The sheep follow him. <laughs> they follow him. And it becomes evident to those around them. They believe in the shepherd. They live for the shepherd. Their lives are marked by obedience to the shepherd. They give evidence and demonstrate that they are his through hearing his voice and following him. The fruit of following Jesus, or excuse me, following Jesus is a fruit of having been given and drawn by the Father. And I love what J.C. Ryle says here. Speaking of election, he says, he says that election can only be known by its fruit. The elect of God, i.e. those who are his sheep, can only be discerned from those who are not elect by their faith and life. We cannot climb into the secret of God's eternal counsels. We cannot read the book of life. The fruits of the Spirit seen and manifested in a man's, converg- in a man's conversion are the only grounds on which we can ascertain that he is one of the elect of God. He says, where the marks of God's elect can be seen, there and only do we have any warrant for saying this one is one of the elect. And I love this. Listen to this. He says, how do I know that, and he's writing, you know, a little ways before us. How do I know that yon distant ship on the horizon of the sea has any pilot or steersman on board? I cannot with the best telescope discern anything but her masts and sails, yet I see her steadily moving in one direction. And that is enough for me. Isn't that well said? The sheep follow him. What is the direction and orientation of their life? Where are they going? They keep following him. And the last truth that sets apart the sheep is the fact that they are kept forever. They are kept forever. Somebody say amen. Jesus says in verse 28 that I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is as clear and as powerful of a statement on the eternal security of believers as anywhere in the scriptures. And it's all wrapped up in the power of the Father and the Son to keep their sheep. He says here that he gives them eternal life. I give you a pop quiz. How long is eternal life? Can he give eternal life if he then takes it away from them? Can he give eternal life if they end up not having eternal life? No. You see, he keeps them forever. He gives them eternal life. He leads them to pasture eternally. And he goes on, he says, and they will never perish, which recalls for us John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
This perishing is speaking of suffering condemnation and wrath in hell eternally because of our sins and rebellion. But we're told that just by believing in the Son, by faith in the Son, all of us sinners can be forgiven and adopted and given the right to become children of God just by believing in his name. He gives, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So maybe a few will escape. Is that what Jesus is saying? Let me say it again. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. What percentage are getting snatched? Zero percent. Jesus says that and promises here that he will keep them, which is an amazing statement. You have to be, you have to be the best, most powerful, perfect shepherd in order to make a statement like that. And we see that he is because he's not just shepherding according to his own will, but he's shepherding according to the will of his father. Look at, that's why he goes to the next. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So not only do we have Jesus' promise that no one will, but also as he shepherds according to the will of the Father, he says that it's not even possible. It's not even possible. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's an amazing, amazing statement. If you've ever wrestled with assurance of salvation, you should rest assured that no matter what comes your way, or no matter what you face in your life, that the Lord is holding on to you. And it's not your perfect grip that gets you through, but it's his perfect grip holding you. He is keeping you. And anyone that would try to take you out of his hand is going to fail miserably. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, Jesus says here. And he says, I and the Father are one, which is an amazing statement. And I think it's on par with what the Gospel of John opens up with. The the Gospel of John opened up with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So we see a, a, a distinction of persons in the very verse, very first verse of the Gospel of John, and yet a unity of divine substance or essence. A distinction of persons and a unity of essence. This, th- that's the building blocks of the doctrine of the triune God. And so what we see here as Jesus is emphasizing the, the power to keep, we see that this is something that both the Father and the Son are exercising equally And if anyone is exercising equally the power of God with God, he must be God. In other words, the Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. We have three distinct persons. We have one divine essence, one God. And a lot of people... I think sell this passage short is the truth is the Jews understand him to be making some claim like that because they pick up stones to stone him and accuse him of having him being a mere man having made himself equal to God how did he make himself equal well in regards to authority and power he just equated his keeping with the father's keeping and said both of those are going to happen nothing no one's going to snatch it out of there so they pick up stones to stone him. And I'll let Pastor Jeff get to, to share about that and, and some more next week. But all this is to say that we should have clarity then on what Jesus, who Jesus' sheep are. And I come back to the question of seeing Jesus talk about how sheep are given by the father known by the shepherd called by the shepherd who are following the shepherd who are kept forever are you 
his sheep. If you are, then you're known and you're loved and you're called. You are given and you will be kept and you will be preserved and no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. So when, when, when you have fears and you have doubts and your, 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 your own sanctification stumbles, when you have temptations to go astray, you run to this passage, you run to the shepherd, you run to his words, you run to his works to be given assurance that he truly is the messianic shepherd and I truly am his sheep. I want to close with a quote. It's from J.C. Rao. He says that Christ gives eternal life to his people. He bestows on them freely a right and title to heaven, pardoning their many sins and clothing them with a perfect righteousness. Money and health and worldly prosperity he often wisely withholds from them, but he never fails to give them grace and peace and glory. Christ declares that his people shall never perish. Weak as they are, they shall all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies of their souls may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier, and none shall pluck them out of the Savior's hands. Father, we praise you for being such a mighty Savior and for sending your Son and for revealing him to us sinners, Lord. God, would you continue to reveal your son to sinners even now? And I pray, Lord, that those who are here for the first time or those who have been coming, Lord, but who have not said and decided, I am going to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. And I pray, Lord, that they would do that today knowing that they only do so by your grace. But Lord, help them to do it. And may they do it. And may they not miss out on the assurance of care and salvation and eternal life that you provide for your sheep. We adore you. And we lift up praise to you now with gratitude in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.